This is episode number 22 with Jeannie Sakata. Coming up. I'm grateful that all these things are happening and that there are so many more opportunities than there used to be. And when I'm tempted to feel overwhelmed, as sometimes I do, I really just try to go to that place of gratitude. Where I would listen to him and he, I would think, oh, that's what that teacher was talking about. Protest me, the baby of a god, hands under a mockery, hand. You know, he would just ride the vowels naturally. Uh, just as a native speaker of Spanish, it was just thrilling to listen to him. I think when I discovered Gordon's toy, it was so full of light and redemption for all those years of dealing with and absorbing and wrestling with that pain, with that psychic pain. Perhaps you discovered your passion for acting later in life, or maybe you didn't get the early start on this career you think you need. Well, our guest today was in the exact same spot, and she still pursued it and has experienced quite a bit of success. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agan, and this is The Working Actor's Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We continue with Season 3, and if you're just joining us, there are over 20 episodes with fantastic actors you'll want to check out. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey that the road may be long and challenging, and that it is ultimately rewarding. Think of these guests like your personal acting mentors. You may not know it yet, but one of them could change your life. We have a new free guide to download. It's called 10 Ways to Stop Worrying and Start Working. Discover the Mindset of Working Actors. Inside this online guide are 10 specific ways you can stop worrying and start working when it comes to being an actor. Hear thoughts, ideas, and advice from those who have been acting 40-plus years, taken from excerpts from past episodes. These guests do not know everything, nor is everything easy for them. They just have been around long enough to have figured out a few things, and they are sharing this with you. Get your copy of the guide now at workingactorsjourney.com slash sign up, and there's also a link in the episode description and on the show notes. Today on the show is actress and playwright Jeannie Sakata, with a 30-plus year career spanning theater, film, television, and voiceover. She was in two different stage productions this past year, both with notable companies jumping from Shakespeare to new plays, appearing in Othello at A Noise Within in Pasadena, California, and in Do You Feel Anger at the Vineyard Theater in New York. For her first play, Jeannie wrote the celebrated and award-winning solo show Hold These Truths, based on the life of Gordon Hirabayashi a Japanese-American student at the University of Washington who challenged the American government during World War II. Jeannie and I definitely chat about this play and all the different ways it intersects and connects with her own life. Plus, it's just such a fascinating story. The show has been produced all over the country and recently in Canada. And for those in Southern California, you can check out Hold These Truths at San Diego Rep, where the show opens November 14th. 
I've seen the play. It's an amazing story and a great production. So in today's episode, Jeannie and I cover growing up on a lettuce farm right near the railroad tracks, thinking she would be a journalist and majoring in English at UCLA, how acting and therapy both came into her life at the same time, how the Spanish language opened her eyes to working on Shakespeare, her deep need to tell Gordon's story based on her own family's history, how her marriage and relationship has lasted over 40 years, and so much more. Jeannie has such a great attitude toward celebrating your successes, allowing for flow, and being open to multiple approaches. And she even shares how she worked on a monologue with a Cambodian accent for a TV show. So don't miss that. Now, if you're enjoying these episodes, I want to let you know you can also become a premium member of the show, and there are a number of different perks, including bonus episodes, exclusive opportunities, and more. Members can hear additional conversations with past guests Robert Pine, Don Didwick, Richard Reilly, and Tony winner Reed Burney. Head over to workingactorsjourney.com slash premium to find out more and become a member. A special shout out to those at the co-star level or higher. Adam, Jeff, Robert, Ken, and Ralph. Thrilled that you all are members. So here's a bit more about Jeannie's career. She has worked at acclaimed regional theaters all over the country, including in New York, Seattle, Portland, the Bay Area, and numerous theaters in Southern California. Jeannie has played opposite such legendary actors as Cheetah Rivera, Estelle Parsons, and Raul Julia. She is a member of L.A.'s award-winning classical group, The Antias Company. She won a Los Angeles Ovation Award for Outstanding Lead Actress in Che Yu's Red at East-West Players. She was awarded the Lee Melville Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Los Angeles Theater Community, Playwrights Arena, and the Dramalogue Outstanding Performance Award for her work in The Maids at East-West Players. Jeannie has over 40 credits on film and TV, including recurring parts on the shows Dr. Ken and High School Musical, The Musical, The Series. And she has even appeared in Justin Lin's Yom Yom F web series, which we do talk about, and you'll learn what that means if you don't already. It's pretty hilarious. I feel fortunate to call Jeannie a peer and friend, and we've even shared the stage a couple of brief times. I'm very honored she's here, and I hope you enjoy this one. Don't forget about Jeannie's play Hold These Truths at San Diego Rep starting November 14th. So here we go with episode number 22. Please enjoy my chat with Jeannie Sakata. Now, you were saying that you had just had a bunch of auditions come up recently. And was that for yes. TV and film or theater? Really, for both. I had one that came up for theater, a very intensely emotional scene. Um, I had several aud- uh, commercial auditions that came up and several television auditions as well. 
And in addition to that, I've been trying to work on a new play. So there have been a lot of burners burning, or a lot of pots on the burners burning, right. I should say. Do you find that those things come in waves for you, that there's just kind of a flurry of auditions? Or are you fortunate in that things are pretty, you know, um, you're busy consistently in terms of preparing something? Well, it used to be that the auditions would come and I would pay put my actor's hat on and I would pay attention to preparing for those auditions. And then there would be a kind of more delineated boundary line um, in, in the old days. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, then I would, it's partly why I turned to writing because I had a back injury actually, and oh, I had okay. a lot of time on my hands. And that's when I started thinking about, seriously thinking about developing a play, which became my play about Gordon Hirabayashi, my solo play uh, called Hold These Trues. Right. But now I am, Hold These Trues has been going on for over a decade now, and I've gotten a commission from LA Theatre Works to start a new play. So I'm mm. doing research for that, and the auditions come in, and now I'm finding that I'm you know, kind of bouncing from one thing to another m- much quicker than I used to. You know, it used to be that I would be a playwright for a while and then I'd have an audition and go back to being a playwright and then back to auditioning. But now it seems like everything is happening at once. So it's been a really interesting time to just approach everything in a much more relaxed way, kind of like a basketball player. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, bouncing the ball and heading towards the basket. And, oh, all of a sudden, you know, intercepted. And now we're going back and I'm on, on defense and then this way and that way. And that. So there's a kind of ricocheting quality to what I'm doing now. <laughs> sure. Which is really interesting and really fascinating and really challenging. And I think I just have to kind of let loose the grip in terms of saying, all right, this is my writing time and this is my acting time and just allowing for a flow of things to happen that are very different, you know, audition for a commercial and then uh, research for the play and then audition for a TV show and then audition for a theater play and then back to researching and writing. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting time. Well, and it sounds like uh, what you're doing is, you know, the the stereotypical waiting by the phone to call that you're not doing that, that you, you know, you are proactively keeping yourself busy with other things. Uh, and and specifically, you know, uh, right now, the playwriting is, is one of those things. But did you did you find that difficult, you know, in your maybe earlier days of the times between auditions of what do I do with myself? What do I do with my time? Like, how do I not stress about the lack of auditions I have? Did, did you ever have that? And how did you get through it? Yes, it's it's very interesting, I think, because in the last few years, there has been a much greater push on the part of people in the entertainment industry, a wonderful push uh, to give actors of color uh, more of a chance um, mm-hmm. in auditioning for roles that used to be just, you know, for Caucasian actors, there's been much more of a, 
uh, awareness uh, that there needs to be more diversity in casting, and not just in supporting roles, but in lead roles and in series regular roles. So we've seen much more of that. And I think that accounts for the fact that uh, there are more auditions for us now, mm-hmm. uh, for us a- a actors of Asian ancestry, because it's interesting. I didn't used to audition this much. And um, when I was a younger actor, you know, if I, I was doing well, if two or three auditions came up per month. And now that's, I think, kind of the norm, at least, to yeah, yeah, auditions yeah. for month. Uh, but it used to be, like I said, that my time as a writer and my time as an actor was much more delineated. I would have either one or the other. And so I would be free to devote my energy exclusively to one or the other. Right. And now it's really that I have this pool of energy and it just has to flow from one thing to another, being an actor to a writer to sure, sometimes sure. a producer and, you know, back and forth again. Right. So, it, um, I really find that challenging. It's an exciting challenge right now, but it's a new challenge, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I think what fuels it all for me right now is gratitude because I'm grateful that all these things are happening and that there are so many more opportunities than there used to be. And when I'm tempted to feel overwhelmed, as sometimes I do, I really just try back to go to that place of gratitude. And I think that fortifies um, the energy that I have for all these different challenges, if right. that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it does. It does. And, and, and of course, the more interviews I have, I guess my brain is wired in a way that I can kind of retain to some degree a lot of the episodes. And, and uh, I remember Armin Shimmerman talking about one of the big themes he, he talked about was gratitude. And he said, you know, he's just like, I have just been so fortunate and blessed you know i think he even used the phrase like there there's like been like a cornucopia of of blessings in his life that you know he'd be silly not to be grateful for it all Um, yes yes uh but it's a thing that i think we have to consciously practice conscious gratitude yes because it's very easy you know we want more you know we want something we don't have and then we get it and then we want the next thing. And I think that it has sort of a, a maelstrom effect. Of, you know, you're constantly swirling around in this culture of wanting more. And I find it really helpful and necessary to step back from time to time and just count the things that have happened in the last year or so. Be grateful for each thing. Take the time to really feel that gratitude. And it has a calming effect, I think, for me on that culture of wanting right. more and more and more. Uh, so- yeah, and, and right. And there's also the part that goes along with it, I think, is celebrating our successes, however big or small they might be. Um, Absolutely. That, you know, we're in a culture where it's easy to just kind of rush by things. And, yes. you know, even if it's... So you know, true. Yeah, even if, you know, there's just, you know, you you know, got your headshot to another casting office or whatever it is, whatever the, you know, obstacle was or the mountain you had to climb, uh, that you're celebrating those small things because of course that's what leads to any large thing. It's all these little steps. Yes, absolutely. I am a big believer in celebrating the little small steps that we tend to just rush by, as you say, Nathan, um, but, you know, it's interesting because I'm preparing for 
three productions of Holy's Truths that will be coming up in the next year. Right. And I was, as part of that introduction, preparing a list of those productions. And I was really quite astonished to see how many there had been. And while I was preparing for those auditions, it's been over 20, I wasn't really consciously aware of how many there had been because I was just focused on getting that photo to this theater and getting that essay written for the program, you know, and of this production. And I uh, didn't realize up until quite recently just how many there had been in the past 12 years. So that was really amazing to just drink all that in and just enjoy the fact that it had been an amazing, incredible ride so far. And it's not over yet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I do definitely want to talk more about the show, but you and, and your, you know, path to that. And I want to kind of go back and, and track a little bit of your early years. And so you grew up in Santa Cruz. Is that correct? Actually, I grew up just a little south of Santa Cruz in Farmingtown. Okay. I call Watsonville. Okay. Watsonville, yeah. And in the Pajaro Valley. Okay. Uh, a pajaro is a Spanish word for bird. Oh. And okay. so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. And up until eight years old, I was in a little house in the middle of my grandfather's iceberg lettuce fields. Oh, wow. Just a little ways down from the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks. So I literally grew up until the age of eight, right by the railroad tracks. <laughs> and and just surrounded by, you know, fields of crops. Right. And so like your your parents or even your grandparents, were they uh were they uh born in this country or were they or were you the first generation born in this country? My uh, parents were born in this country. Okay. Uh, the first generations of uh, Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans are referred to as Issei, Nisei, and Sansei. Oh, okay. Uh, Ichi-ni-san. Ichi-ni-san is one, two, three in Japanese. And so the first generation who were immigrants who were born in Japan and immigrated, uh, they were called the Issei. Right. And, uh, they were my, be my grandparents' generation. And then the second oh. generation, which be, be, would be the first American born generation, would be their children, my father and mother's generation, the Nisei. All right. And then, um, the children of the Nisei, which is my generation, uh, we are called the Sansei, the oh, third okay. generation. And cool. so our children are called the Yonsei or fourth generation. Cool. It, it you know, it, I only know like a sliver of Japanese culture, but I, I, I'm always, I always enjoy like how much of a sense of history and tradition there is, uh, you know, whether it's in the language or just the culture. It's, I, I think it's really cool. Yes. I have lovely memories of growing up hearing uh, Japanese and English. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I just treasure those memories more and more. You know, the sounds of the Japanese and English in the same household. This, again, I, I, I think, I think it'll be impossible for us not to like touch on your play in almost any area of your life. But one of the things I was thinking about is I was looking at the, you know, time period when you were born and all that. That was not that long after the war. And I, I was curious, you know, if your family had had any experiences with the internment camps, you know, during the war and, you know, how that might have impacted, you know, their way of life, uh, you know, even post-war. 
uh, growing up, you know, oh, being in California. Yes. yes. My mother's side of the family uh, lived in Colorado, so they were not imprisoned during World War II. Okay. There's plenty of racism, of course, in Colorado, right. but uh, the orders that came up from the government concerned the West Coast mostly in parts of yeah. um, Arizona. And, you know, it was military zones that were designated by the government um, that meant that Executive Order 9066 stated that anyone within these military zones uh, that were designated by the government could be forcibly removed. Mm. And so since that did not include states like Colorado in the middle of the United States, they did not have to go. But my father's side of the family, they all had to go. Wow. They were all living, the majority of them were living at the time in Watsonville, California, which is just south of Santa Cruz. And uh, they had just a few days to really pack up their belongings and to put their things in storage and to, uh, my grandfather to put his property and his business into the hands of people that fortunately said they would take care of them for him. And then they had to go to the Salinas uh, assembly centers in, in the fairgrounds there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they spent some time there and then they had to ship out to Arizona uh, to the Poston camps in Arizona, the barbed wire camps there. So they spent, about a year there, they were fortunate because they didn't have to spend that much time compared to other families who had to spend several years there. And this is because my grandfather, being a farmer, was able to give advice on how to, for example, bring in water to irrigate crops that they were trying to grow mm. in the desert, in the posting camps. And because of the fact that he was able to give that sort of valuable advice he was able to leave after a year, but he didn't really go back to Watsonville immediately. He actually went up to Oregon hmm. and uh, took part in some farming operations up there and then eventually made his way back to Watsonville. Wow. And he was very lucky because yeah. he did not lose his business. He didn't right. lose his business or his property as many Japanese American families did yeah. because he had people who held it in good trust for him until he returned. Hmm. Uh, but there was huge property losses, you know, on the part of many other Japanese American families when they came back. Of course. Either their businesses were, um, taken over, they were swindled out of their land, uh, things that they held in storage were looted. So there were huge property losses. And I think my grandfather was just incredibly fortunate. Yeah. You know, one yeah. of the fortunate few. Yeah. Right. Talk, talk about gratitude again. Yes. And, but you're right. This, this happened in the early 1940s. Yeah. And, um, I was born in 1954. So it was just a decade after, you right. Know, right. Camps and all that had happened when I was born. And growing up, I definitely sensed as a child, even though I couldn't put it into words, that that was a period of shame and of hiding and of great spiritual darkness for wow. them. Yeah. And they did not want to talk about it. Yeah. I wow. discovered that as I was growing up, every time I brought it up, the subject was quickly changed mm. or they would give like one or two words to questions I asked and then they would change the subject. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's hard to, uh, 
you know, of course, relate to an experience that, you know, you haven't been through yourself. And so, yeah, they, they were just, I'm sure, processing it as, as best as they could. Um, but, um, yes. yeah, unbelievable. Yes. Now, you said you were there until eight. So then where did your family move after that? We moved to the suburbs of Watsonville. Okay. <laughs> we moved out of <laughs> okay. the, we moved away from the railroad tracks and out of the fields out of the boonies, so to speak, into a residential neighborhood. Uh, My mother was very excited about this because it meant we were actually in a in neighborhood with neighbors and houses around instead of, you know, dirt. (laughs) Um, So we had neighbors and a neighborhood for the very first time. And this was, you know, a really exciting development uh, for us all. And, you know, I didn't really miss the lettuce fields and the dirt because I was excited mm-hmm. at the prospect of, you know, having a, a sidewalk that I could roller skate on and things like this. Sure. Uh, but looking back, you know, I'm really glad I had both. Yeah. That I had that rural experience as well as, you know, the world of suburbia. <laughs> yeah. And so as you were, you know, growing up in that area, were what kind of things were you involved in? Were you uh, into the sports, into arts, both? You know, what were you, where did you Yeah, I got, invo- I got involved with uh, Pee Wee League. So I played softball. I was the only girl on an all-boys team for a while. Oh, wow. Uh, I was a huge tomboy, so I was very proud of that, even though I made them sink in the league, and I think we tied for last place. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I also got involved with Girl Scouts, you know, became a brownie sure, and uh, all that. And it was just really great to have friends whose houses I could walk over to and, you know, have slumber parties with eventually and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and all that. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And it was really lovely to see my mom. Uh, she was really, really happy to, you know, be in a neighborhood and, and just to see her be able to have the advantages of a little nicer home. Sure. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, so it was, it was a real change. Cool. Very cool. And what, what kind of things did your parents do in terms of work uh, my or dad hobbies? A farmer. Or... Yeah. He's, okay. um, my grandfather, uh, started a business. Uh, when he came over and he was very fortunate because he was able to join up with two people that were from his village in Japan. Oh, wow. And the three of them had a farming business together. They actually started out in Lompoc mm-hmm. and, um, they were able to, uh, they did very well. They, you know, some of it was, I think, shrewd planning and some of it was luck and they farmed, uh, you know, bushberries and beans and, uh, they were able eventually to purchase some land, which was very unusual for Japanese mm. at that time. Sure. Because what happened was California passed the alien land law, which made it, um, illegal for Japanese immigrants to own land, but they had purchased their land right before that happened. So they were able to kind of have a leg up in terms right. of moving up you know, in the farming world. And eventually, uh, my grandfather was able to establish himself in Watsonville. He bought out his two uncles who took their earned American fortune and went back to Japan. And so he was able to 
uh, summon his bride with my grandmother, who was actually kind of a distant cousin of his from the same Japanese village he was from. And he began a family and he started a business, a farming and shipping business in uh, Watsonville, California called Sakata Ranches. And he was able to um, hook up with a Caucasian man named Travers. So for a while, they had a business called Travers and Sakata. And then eventually my grandfather bought uh, Travers out. And so he had this really thriving business right when World War II broke out. Mm, wow. And as I said, because he was in partnership with Travers and he had pretty good standing in the farming community around the Watsonville Salinas area. You know, he was able to have people hold his business until uh, he came back. And so that was sort of the environment that I grew up in, you know, as a Japanese American farming family. Right. Right. And with different generations. And, and so when I came to write my solo show about Gordon Hirabashi, this truth, Gordon was from that same kind of background. Oh wow! And so I felt like I knew that world. Sure, I had grown. He grew up in a religious environment, a Christian environment. It was an unusual one because his family uh, belonged to this sect called the Mukyokai, uh, which means I think friends of the world. They were very much like the Quakers, and I grew up in a Japanese American Presbyterian home, so. Not really like the Quakers, but still there were enough uh, similarities so that I felt very comfortable writing about Gordon. Yeah. I felt cool. like, oh, yes, I know the world that he's from. Very cool. I know that dirt of the fields. And yeah. The, you yeah. know, lettuce, what it looks like when it's, you know, fruit sprouts out of the ground. And I know the hymns his family would have sang. Wow. So all that came into play when I wrote my solo show. Very cool. And so yeah. at, at, at what point did you was it in high school that you started to have an inkling or interest in acting or or did that come in then you know it didn't then only in terms of envy i really envied the kids <laughs> that were you know in the thespian society and that would put on plays and i would go see these dramatic productions that my high school put on and i said oh man i wish i could do that but i didn't think i had any talent for that and uh, so i went to college with the aim to be a journalism major. I did love to write. What? And I thought that I would either be um, a broadcast journalist or international journalist or reporter. And so I majored in English at UCLA. And then somewhere around my junior, senior year, I found out about this Asian American theater company called East West Players. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, they were over there in Vermont, in East Hollywood. And they were doing a play called And the Soul Shall Dance, written by Wakako Yamauchi, who is my of my father's generation, the Nisei generation. And she had written a play about Japanese-American farmers, about this Japanese-American farming family in the Imperial Valley. And I was so enthralled because... At UCLA, I had trouble deciding what to major in. I, I majored in English, but I knew that I didn't want to just devote my studies to English literature. I was really interested in music, in drama, in cultural anthropology, in history, 
in a dance, in quiet, in singing. And I, I thought that I wanted to have a life that included all these other things as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. And when I went to see And the Soul Shall Dance, it was like a ton of bricks hit me because not only was I discovering the world of theater, I was discovering that there were Asian American plays about people like me. About Japanese American farming families. I did not know that up until that point. You know, there was no theater really to speak of in Watsonville that I knew about. Mm-hmm. Um, actually years later, I found out there was theater in San Juan Bautista, mm. uh, Luis Valdez and Teatro Casino. Oh, yeah. But I didn't know yeah. that at the yeah. time. You know, I didn't know enough to, to know that. And, so, uh, I was so thrilled to find out about East West players and, uh, playwrights like Wakako Yamuchi. And so that planted a seed. And eventually I took the first East West players summer workshop, which was in the early 1980s. And, uh, that's when the bug bit and that right. really changed my life. Okay. Seeing Wakako's play. Yeah. All right. So now I know we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit and I, I want to get back, but I, I'm curious how important it was for you to be part of the East West players company or, or at least, you, you know, uh, within that world. And was that something you had been looking for in terms of a way to connect more with your culture? Um, I, I know sometimes there are people who, and sometimes in the arts, but, uh, was that ever something you resisted or tried to distance yourself from? Like, you know, not embracing, you know, your full Asian heritage and all that kind of stuff or. Yes. Well, I think, I think many people of color, we go through that, you know, we grow up in our early years. We don't see ourselves reflected on television or in the movies or in literature and we start wishing very much that we were Caucasian. Mm, sure. And it breeds a kind of, uh, a kind of self-esteem problem where you as a American of Asian ancestry are somehow less than a Caucasian American. Mm. And I think it takes a lot of years to overcome that. And by the time I got to college though, there was a movement in place. Uh, for Asian American studies, for us to study Asian American history and not just, you know, Caucasian American history. And there was really a sense of, um, Asian American pride that was blooming and blossoming at that time. And I was going to college when this was happening. And so to discover Asian American theater was another branch of that. Mm-hmm. So it was, I was ready for it. And I was also ready for it because, as I said, I was realizing that in my life, I wanted to create a life that not just had English literature in it, right. but all these other things that I loved. Uh, I was also working as a part-time job at the U- University Elementary School Library which was emphasizing new ways of looking at education, positive reinforcement, for example, um, and oral storytelling for children. You know, there was a real emphasis on oral storytelling as an art form. So the librarian at the University Elementary School Library, her name was Carolyn, I remember, and she memorized stories, folk tales, 
you know, fairy tales to tell the children that came for story time there. She didn't just read a, mm, a book. Cool. She practiced the art of oral storytelling. And I worked there and I fell in love with that idea. And at the time I was thinking, maybe I'll become a professional oral storyteller <laughs> or puppeteer or something. But, you know, I was loving all these different aspects of classes I was taking everything from puppetry to, like I said, cultural anthropology and sociology. And somewhere along the line, it occurred to me when I took an acting class in my senior year, oh my God, I did that and I felt so at home hmm. in that acting class. And I said, you know, if I go into theater, I can use all these things. Sure. I can intersect with all these things that I love. You know, everything from psychology to puppetry to costuming to acting to, you know, and, and it was just a revelation to me. So when I went to see and the social dance at Eastwood's players added to that was the fact that there were Asian American plays, which I didn't know about. And so it all came together. I think when I came to see and the social dance, this is the place right, yeah. where I can embrace everything I love. Yeah. So how did, how did you nurture that relationship? If you, you know, were so clear, like, okay, this, this is my home. These are my people. Yeah. How, how do I get well, in? It just so happened that East West Players was offering their first summer workshop okay. in yeah. theater arts. So I took that first summer workshop. I was putting my husband through school. Uh, at the time, and as soon as um, he was done and I was able to quit my job, I said, that's it, I'm going to try and become an actor. Mm. And so I took the first East West Players Summer Workshop, and there were classes in acting and dancing and playwriting, uh, just all kinds of classes and all kinds of things, and I just, just absorbed it and drank it all up. And then I started auditioning in the East West Players. I started understudying in plays there. I understudying in a whole bunch of plays and I finally got cast in something. And then from there, you know, I worked at East West Players and plays and then I branched out to other LA theaters. And then I started auditioning for equity theaters. At the time, I think the first one, first audition I had was at Wheel Gear Theatrical Botanical. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it was Romeo and Juliet where I played Rosaline, totally non-speaking role, but I got to, you know, run around oh, and be yep. emotional. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, I remember Forrest Whitaker was actually in that production. He played Benvolio. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, he was a student fresh out of USC. Right. Yeah. And, uh, from there I started auditioning for regional theater. I started to get some jobs in regional theater and, uh, then you know, that's when my career just started to roll. And were you doing and all this? And then I this? got an agent. Yeah, okay. I was just about to ask if you were doing all this without an agent or how you kind of knew what to do next. Like, how were you? What was I, the I think I went course? through about three or four agents before I finally landed in the agency where I've been, you know, for decades and yep. where I still belong, BRS Gage. I love them and they're such great people. Um, there were a lot of different agents, you know, through the years then. And, um, I was doing, I was doing a play, uh, called Megabeth, a play, hmm. modern adaptation of the Scottish sure, play. Sure. And we were, it was sort of an avant-garde performance art piece. And we were doing it in a former swimming palladium for Hollywood stars that had now 
sort of fallen on hard times. And it, it was, uh, we covered it in black tarp and there were, the, the main character, Megabeth, was in the shallow end and the warrior Macduff was, who was a Zen priest, was in the deep end. And, uh, the audience gathered around the rim of the pool and looked down into the pool to see the play. And, wow. uh, a, a lovely woman, Lenore Zerman was her name and she was a young agent with, uh, at the time BRS Gage was called, um, Bauman Hiller. And she, I think, took pity on me and said, oh, she's really good and she's too good to be out there on her own. And so she said, <laughs> I'm going to try and bring you into the agency. And uh, they said yes. And so I've been there ever since. Oh, <laughs> it's now called BRS Gage. <laughs> and now I know, uh, you, you know, you mentioned auditioning for regional theater. I know you worked at um, ACT in Seattle a number of times. And so how did you... uh how did you start that relationship and, and how did you, you know, because I know you also worked in a number of theaters in the Pacific yes, Northwest. I remember there was a play by uh, Dory Baisley, uh, who is still a friend. It was called Agnes Medley, Our American Friend. And it was about an American woman. She lived in the time of Margaret Sanger. And she went over to uh, join the communist troops uh, when they were quote unquote the good guys, when they were, you know, going around the countryside and, um, telling peasants they wouldn't have to starve anymore and that they were wanting them to join the revolution, you know, against the, uh, the landlords who, you know, were exploiting peasants at the time. And so uh, she went over and she actually joined Chairman Mao, um, when he was at this place called Yen An. And, uh, there was this, amazing thing they did called the long march where they marched through swamps and through snow and through mountains and uh to try and help the peasants through uh, the revolution and of course then everything turned dark with the cultural revolution when the communists were in power and they were you know persecuting uh, people who had anything to do with western culture but um getting way ahead of myself here. At the time, there was a play that was about this at ACP okay. Seattle, and I went to audition for it, and that's how I, I got cast, and that's where I first began relationship with ACT Seattle. And then years later, I was able to bring Holby's Truths there, so it was right. nice to go back as a playwright. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. And were you, were you looking to make any particular region your home at that point? Or were you just, you know... No, I was just a you know, hungry, passionate young actor. <laughs> I just wanted to work wherever anyone would hire me. Right. So I went to Syracuse stage. I went to Seattle. I went to Portland. You know, really just anywhere that anyone wanted to work with me. I think I had a special passion for it because I didn't have an inkling of becoming an actor until I was, you know, well into my, uh, early thirties, mm -hmm. you know, I was on, Oh, I don't think I mentioned that I was on my way at UCLA. I thought I was going to go into the field of, uh, library and information science. And I'd actually been accepted into the graduate school of library and information science at wow. UCLA. And what happened was it was time when California passed a proposition that was 
defunding a lot of California libraries. So I thought maybe it's not the best time to go into that field. And I decided to put my husband through school instead and get experience working in a library. Mm. So I actually worked in a rare book library, the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library, which is part of the UCLA library system. I did that for five years. Wow. And during that time, everything changed for me, and I decided that when I came out of that job that I wanted to become an actor. Right. <laughs> so I, the fact that I didn't like grow up wanting to be an actor or even aware that I haven't had a talent for acting, it was all so new and exciting to me that I was just so passionate. And I, um, looking back, I just remember I'll just go anywhere, anywhere that anybody wants to hire me. Right. So. Well, and, and so, I mean, a couple of things jump out, but... And, and I had this inkling, at least from doing research about your career, that I was curious if you almost benefited by, I get, I don't know if waiting is the right word, but coming into this, uh, a little bit older that, you know, there's just so much, uh, processing of yourself and insecurities and identity and all this stuff that, you know, as young people, we all go through in our late teens and twenties and all that kind of stuff. And once you started working at some, you know, big regional theaters, uh, I was just wondering if like, if your age, you know, even though you were still young, but if that helped you kind of process, you know, what you were doing, working with, you know, whether it was name actors or name theaters, do you, do you feel like that, that helped at all? Well, I think that being a little older and not having had any experience of theater to speak of Mm -hmm. until I was you know, around 30 years old, definitely helped in the sense of just the sense of the joy of discovering it and the passion that I felt. You know, I would think back to those times where I so envied those kids on stage in high school, thinking I had no trace of any kind of talent like that in me. Right. And when I discovered I did have a gift for it, it was just such a joy. Right. You know, it was such an amazing gift. Well, I mean, it, it's probably, it's, it's, it's probably like many people who, you know, at, at 30 or so, you know, you've been out in the world for 10 years and then maybe you finally realize, oh, this is what I wish I went to college for. You know, that kind of thing that, you know, you have that, uh, oh, awakening or, or, uh, realization at that time. So yeah, like you said, you were just really excited about it and really hungry for it. Yeah. But I have to say, I don't know if I really had so much of an advantage in terms of maturity okay. over uh, younger actors who had been doing it for a while because I think that it was a little bit of a disorienting experience to go from thinking that I was going to have a certain kind of career right, and then right. all of a sudden say, I'm an artist. And really not having any background for that or anything in my upbringing that led me to think of myself as an artist. So I did a lot of floundering around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like a fish flopping around, right, you know. Right. And it, it, there was also, um, my mother had died very suddenly when I was 13. Oh, wow. And high school was a really difficult time for me emotionally and psychologically. And it wasn't until I got married um, in my early 20s and then decided that I wanted to be an actor at 30 that I got therapy. Mm. 
So as I was trying to create this acting career, I was also deeply into therapy. Mm, okay. And so the two, in some ways, my early acting career and therapy were just inextricably bound to each other. Right. You know, if I was delving into something in therapy, it meant I was delving into that part of a character that I was trying to create, you know. Okay. I think this was, I remember I was cast in a play called Tea by Valina Hasu Houston. It's her signature mm -hmm. play about Japanese war brides who grew up on an army base in Kansas. It's based on her actual mother's story. And um, I played a character in the play who is actually a ghost. Her name is Himiko. Mm -hmm. And Himiko, throughout the play, is reflecting back on her life and the moments of abuse that she had to suffer and work through and try and transcend. And there was just deep suffering on her part. And, you know, while I wasn't sharing the same exact history that Himiko had, I did have a lot of the grief that she had. And how do you move on and deal with and process your grief and then move on from it? Right. Wow. And so I remember that at that time, my personal and professional lives were really bound together in working on that role that particular very cool yeah i want to ask about a couple specific productions you did early in your career one was i noticed uh speaking of the scottish play you did a production at the public theater with raul julia in i the lead did role. and yes. i spoke with um both armin sherman and peter van norden I think, I think Peter was in the production, but it was when Raoul did, um, McHeath in the Three Penny Opera. Uh, I was just curious, you know, they had their experiences of observing Raoul and I was curious, you know, what your experience was either, you know, watching Raoul in rehearsal or, or did you, I mean, watching somebody at that level who was, you know, so good. Um, w you know, I was just. I was so starstruck the first day okay. of rehearsal. I <laughs> well, he's got also there quite captivating. Really I mean, early. You know, he's not yes. a, he's not a bad looking guy. I I got there so early, and I was just walking through the hallway at the public theater, and up until that point, I had only done ninety nine seat theater and understudied at the taper, which is how I got that job. Oh, okay. Because I had understudied a, in a production of Vaslav Havel's Temptation. He was actually imprisoned at the time um, that we were doing that production. But I got to go on as an understudy, and the director, Richard Jordan, liked my work, and he said he was directing uh, Raul Julian, the Scottish play at Public, and he wanted me to come audition for it, wow. and I got the role. I actually auditioned for Joe Papp, if you can believe that. Oh, wow, that's cool. And, um, yeah, amazing memory. And so I'm walking in the hallways and just taking in the history and seeing posters with Meryl Streep on, you know, and right. it was just an amazing moment. And then who should walk around the corner, but Raul Julia. <laughs> and I got totally tongue tied. <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, Mr. Julia, I'm so honored to meet you. I'm Jeannie Sakata. I'm playing one of the witches. And he said, and I am Raul. <laughs> I was just, Knocked out. So it was a amazing moment. I still remember that moment. Very cool. And it was, yeah, it was thrilling to watch him rehearse because yeah. what he had was this, this beautiful accent. And I had taken 
Shakespeare workshops where one of the techniques that was being taught was to try and ride the vowels and really use the consonants, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, but to ride the vowels, the emotions in the vowels, this one teacher said. And so like, I and oh, and you know, right. Ah, and because Raul spoke Spanish, of course, that was his native tongue. He just naturally did that. Sure. And so I would listen to him and he, I would think, oh, that's what that teacher was talking about. Mm. You know, protest me, the baby of a god, hands under a mockery, hands. You know, he would just ride the vowels naturally. Wow. Uh, just <laughs> as a native speaker of Spanish, it was just thrilling to listen to him. Yeah. And, you know, it was just kind of an amazing baptism of fire for this little 99-seat theater actress. Right, right. You know, to listen to somebody like that, you know, he had this amazing, you know, this amazing, resonant, rich voice. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of a thrilling beginning. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I think, you know, even if you look at his film work, I mean, he's still, and especially like for my generation, we uh, became very familiar with him through the Adams family movies, but he's still, he's still delighting in language in the, in that role. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, he brings that, brings that quality to his work. So, I mean, uh, there, I know there exists online, um, the video of when he did, uh, King Lear, he played Edmund with James Earl Jones and, and it was, you know, there were a lot of other great names in that production, but uh, so it's, it's uh-huh. one, it's a cool way to see him on stage, you know, doing Shakespeare. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, he's, he's an amazing Edmund as, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, it was, uh, was really thrilling just to meet him and, yeah. uh, work with him because, you know, at that time, diversity, it was not a really common thing. Yeah. It was around that time. I remember I wanted to audition for the Heidi Chronicles. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah. Production. I think it was the Broadway production. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I couldn't get an audition. It was pretty much understood that they were just seeing Caucasian actors sure. for a certain role I wanted to audition for. But the irony was that the role I wanted to audition for was a woman who, you know, uh, she was representing, I think, a movement, you know, a social movement, um, women's liberation and all that happening in the play. And, you know, th- some of the things that were happening in the play were synonymous or happening at the same time as the Asian American student movement. And some of these roles were not race specific. Anyone could have played them. Yet it tells you something about the time that, right. you know, I couldn't get an audition. Um, and that was when shortly after we did, uh, the play with Raul. So a lot of us actors of color were really looking up to Raul yeah. at the time because he was, you know, an actor of color who was a star. Right. And, and yeah. who was critically acclaimed. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, well, to kind of keep this, this Shakespeare theme, I also saw that you went and were, you were in LA, uh, doing Richard II with, uh, yes. another very strong cast. You had Kelsey Grammer in the lead and Armin Shimmerman was in it and John Vickery and Norman Snow. That's where I met Armin. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Very John cool. John Vickery. 
Yeah, I met a whole bunch of people. So, so here you are. Like, it was a big cast. Yeah, and then you know Norman was in the first Juilliard class, and and Dakin was involved. Natsuko you know, Ohama was in it. Right, yeah. right. So you're dealing with and and Kelsey is of course very Shabaka Henley. Yeah. Right, right, and Kelsey of course is no slouch when it comes to classical work either. Um, and so you know was that like another education in watching these actors, or or what was your experience of going through that that show? Yes. Very much so. I think that, you know, what was very interesting about that show, um, Robert Egan had directed it and there it was a multiracial cast again at a time when that was not um, a hugely common thing to see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you had African American actors in the cast, you had Asian actors in the cast, uh, Caucasian actors, um, and Latino actors. And so it was really great because what I remember about that particular production in terms of just hearing different actors attack Shakespeare with yeah. the different styles and how everyone really had their own style of coming to Shakespeare, of doing justice to the text. But also, for example, I remember a Shabaka, Barry Shabaka Henley had uh, a speech where he sounded very much like um a preacher, you know, like a preacher from sure. an African-American um, church tradition. Mm-hmm. He had those kind of cadences. You know, you could almost hear, you know, audience response after oh, some wow. of the lines yeah, he yeah, said. Yeah. It was totally unique to him. It was really lovely the way he did it because he did it in a way that was true to his background and in a sense of who he was. And then Natsuko and I, <laughs> we had a really fun experience where actor named Winston, I was playing the gardener mm-hmm. in that play. And so I had a scene with a, a Latino actor named Winston Jose Rocha Castillo, if I remember correctly. Okay. And um, he had to take the place of somebody else for one performance. And so Natsuko Ohama, who was playing another role in this play stepped in for Winston and played my assistant gardener, I think it was. And so Natsuko and I had become good friends by then. And we said to each other, let's just do this. Like we're a couple of Japanese American, like our mothers and we're working <laughs> in the garden since so many of our parents were gardeners. Right. Oh, that's- so that's the way we did the scene. We, you know, just like, Two Japanese ladies working in the garden and gossiping together, <laughs> which gave that a different spin than I think, you know, any other actress doing that scene would have done it. Right. And so that's what I remember about that time is that it was exciting to see. And then you had somebody who was very classically trained, like I would call the, the Juilliard right. uh, like training of someone like John Vickery. Right. Who, you right. know, had that classical bearing and that classical Juilliard kind of feel. Um, and, and Dakin Matthews, I think, was involved with maybe not the production, but a workshop of it. Okay. Yeah. And I think the workshop of that, um, also had Don Cheadle in it. Oh. I remember wow. Don Cheadle had dreadlocks then. He was a young actor with dreadlocks. Yeah. Wow. So that's what I remember. Everyone from Dakin Matthews to Don Cheadle. To Natsuko, to, you know, uh, Winston Rocha and all bringing different cadences and rhythms and, you know, accents to it. And it was just 
a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's so important. I mean, it's, it, it was great that you had that experience to see that there is no one way to do it. That, you know, you can have a successful production or even a successful approach as an actor, specifically with something that Shakespeare and a lot of people are intimidated by, that you, know, yeah. you can find your own way into the material, you know, as long as you're hitting the uh, kind of the markers of, you know, is it, is it clear? Is it emotional? Is it, is it connected and but grounded? It's, you know, yeah. Yes. And along those lines, there are different preferences for Shakespeare, depending on who you audition for. Right. Because yes. I remember I took uh, several classes from a man from Royal Academy Dramatic Art. Yep. Rada. Uh, yep. Yes. I forget his last name. His name was David. And I had done several workshops with him and he, you know, being British, uh, he talked about, you know, rolling the R's, mm-hmm. you know, yep, sure. the brightest heaven of invention, you know, and, um, there was just certain things he emphasized in his training that I absorbed. And then when I went to audition for Oregon Shakespeare Festival, I was doing this training, uh, and I did my monologues that way. And the adjustment I got was, well, this is for an American company and we don't want all those kind of British touches. Got it. You know, yeah, we yeah. want you speaking like you speak every day, like Jeannie. Yep. And it was really hard to disengage from that previous training and do that, you know. And I think I didn't quite get there. <laughs> and then I didn't do Shakespeare for a really long time. And it's very interesting because just earlier this year in January, um, I was doing Othello at Noise Within mm-hmm. that was directed by my dear friend and uh, original director for my solo play, Holy Trues, Jessica Kamsansky. And so I was doing one of my speeches as Lodovica, based on the character Lodovico, which right. Jessica made female. And, you know, Jessica's note to me was, you know, it just sounds a little well-spoken. And she said, really, and it sounds like you're maybe delivering it down here tonally. And I just want you to sound like Jeannie every day. And I thought, oh, I remember getting that note when I auditioned for mm-hmm. OSF. <laughs> and so working on it with Jessica and with Nikki Dukas, who is our uh, wonderful speech coach, oh, yeah, dialect sure. coach, I was able just with some adjustments to get it sounding much more like I hope. I'm sounding right now, <laughs> but also trying to do justice to the language and the right. poetry of Shakespeare. Right. You know, course. I think Dakin Matthews is the standard for gold standard for me when I think of somebody that does that. Right. He, yeah. he makes it sound like he's just talking like Dakin, and yet he does justice to the poetry of everything he's saying. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> talking, talking to Dakin was it was an interesting experience because of course like he was a lifelong teacher too of English so he almost has that uh well he certainly has that intellect and that that curiosity so it it, it yeah it's a good match and and marriage for him um yes well, yes I now I know around this time that we were talking about the, the the shows that you were doing you were starting to get involved in uh you know film and TV and doing on-screen acting yeah. And do you remember getting the TV movie Fine Things? Do you remember the audition oh my God, yes. or, or working on yes. it? Yeah. I do remember. I just had a few lines as Bernard's secretary. Right. I remembered what character I played. <laughs> and DJ Moffat. Yes. He yeah, played yeah, Bernard. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think, 
Michael J. Fox's wife oh, was yep. in it too. Yeah, I can't think of her name right now, but I know I can picture who you're talking Tracy, about. Tracy. Yes. Is it um, Tracy? That sounds very familiar. Yes. Yeah, I think that was one of my first TV jobs. And well, I mean, were you were you scared out of your mind? Did you feel confident? Were you comfortable? You know, because I know. Well, you know, I, I remember that the director of that particular it was a TV movie, as yep, I recall. Yep. And the director of that project was a theater director. Right. Yeah. I worked saw, a lot at yeah, UCT. I saw that it was uh, uh, Tom Moore. And yes, he did Tom have Moore, he did have a it. lot of theater credits. I mean, he ended up going on to direct tons of TV and film, but up to that point he had just done a lot of theater. Yes, and I think that was one reason why I didn't really feel intimidated because mm-hmm. I think at my auditioned he mentioned the fact, "Oh, you've done a lot of theater. I come out of theater too." And I felt at ease auditioning oh. for him. And I think that there on the set, I think D.W. Moffat had also done a lot of theater. And so I didn't feel, and I think up until that point, I had gotten a few TV jobs. Right, sure. And so I felt comfortable being on the set, and I liked what I was doing. I was playing a secretary, but I had a few fun little lines where I was poking fun at him, uh, at, <laughs> at, at my boss, right. the character of my boss, because he was interested. He had a romantic, romantic interest, and I think he wanted me to look her up and find out what I could find out about her, but he didn't want to let me know he was interested in her, but I knew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I got to poke fun at him a little bit. So I really enjoyed that job. And Tom, I remember, was so lovely to everyone from the stars down to, you know, the under five players like me. He was just incredibly kind and attentive and praising of everyone and inclusive of everyone. And so it was a really lovely um, early job to have <laughs> as a TV actor. Very cool. And, and was it just kind of snowballing? Like one project, not necessarily led to the next, but you know, it, it just started, the momentum was there in terms of you auditioning and, and with your agent and all that kind of stuff. Was that how it all? Yes. The first agent, I had had three or four agents before I found one that, um, I felt really comfortable with where everything sort of landed for me. And at the time, that first agency was called Feature Players Agency, and it was started by two casting directors. They saw a need to fill roles, like under five roles, under five lines, that were mm-hmm. small roles, but that required some real acting. Right. Because lots of times, producers would say, you know, it's a small role, it's just a few lines, but we need someone who can really act. So the tendency lots of times was that people would come in who were just starting acting, beginning acting, trying to get the first few credits, but they weren't able to quite fill those parts, you know, with their acting abilities. So they started this agency for that particular need for, you know, they were serving actors who needed to get those first few credits, but it was a five line part where the fireman had to to really be passionate and committed in his delivery of those five lines. So they started, it was called Feature Players Agency, and they helped a lot of actors get started just to get those first few credits. And then, you know, what would happen is those actors would then move on to wanting to audition for guest star roles. Sure. Career yeah. roles. And so that's what happened for me. You know, I got to the point where I wanted to move on to audition for bigger roles, but I had those first few credits. And so... 
you know, I was very grateful to them. And then I uh, joined uh, Bauman Hiller, which then became BRS Gage years later, which right. it is now. And I started going out on, you know, bigger roles and got sure. a few things. I, I I felt like I went on hiatus a little bit in the last few years uh, because my attention was so focused on my career as a playwright yep. and Hold These Truths was going around the country and I was really paying a lot of attention to that because I started off having an agent, but then uh, that agent retired and um, I didn't find representation after she retired. So I was operating on my own, but a lot of things were happening with the play. So I kind of took my eye off the ball in terms of my acting career. I kept acting, but I just wasn't as focused on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, now I'm in a place where I'm kind of missing that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to do these two things equally well now. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Keep our fingers crossed that I can. Yeah. Tell me about having too many exciting projects. You know, you're always trying to like balance, you know, uh, the amount of energy you're putting into it. And you want to put all of your, you want to put a full time amount of energy into each of them. But of course that's impossible. Yes. Um, well, my, my hope is that there is a, good deal of cross fertilization taking place yes. in my subconscious that I don't even know right. about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I want to, I want to ask a, a few, just a few more theater questions and then we, and then I definitely do want to talk more about the, the play, hold these truths. Um, mm-hmm. But I noticed you worked with uh, Che Yu a number of times. Uh, yes. Over your che career. has been a major, major mentor and a hero in yeah. my career and ass kicker. And <laughs> well, it's, it's there, good to there's, have if there's like anyone that. that can nail you to the wall with a lot of love and passion with only your best interests at heart, it's Che. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. That's great. I, I mean, and I know, I know you, you first worked on his play red in Seattle. It was the premiere of it, right? Yes. Okay. He that- wrote this play read about a three person play about the cultural revolution. Yeah. And then, and I did the premiere with Sapshimono and Michi Baral. It was directed by Lisa Peterson up at the Intamon theater. And then right, we later yeah. went to Portland center stage. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I was, I was curious cause I know, and you know, you got a lot of uh, critical acclaim for, you know, you ended up playing Sab's part in LA and, yeah, that was and, wild. Yeah, so I was curious just to, you know, see, to see somebody. Well, it's a three you know, character play. And it's a three character play in which there is a father and a daughter. And oh. I guess to explain it, I'll have to do a bit of a spoiler because okay. you don't find out, um, about a certain relationship in the play until the very end. Maybe I can do this without the spoiler. Okay, good. <laughs> no, let, let's, let's just say that there's a Beijing opera star, uh, played by a male actor. Yep. And then there's a, uh, a journalist. I think she's yep. in her forties and a young red guard who is played by actress, say in her twenties around that age. And, I was originally asked to play the journalist in the premiere, which I did. And then to my surprise, a few years later, Che, who is from Singapore and who had not been back to Singapore in a dozen years, 
uh, his plays had been banned in Singapore from some time. And oh, then wow. he was invited. Yeah, yeah. But Che, you know, is gay. And so his content in his plays, whenever they alluded to something that was, you know, themed to be uh, gay, quote unquote, content, right. Right. Um, it, it was frowned upon in Singapore. And so his plays, you know, were banned for a time. And after a period of years, he had been invited back to Singapore. I think they had, you know, loosened that ban and invited him back. And he had done very well in the States, you know, in the American theater community sure. here. Yeah. Yeah. And he wanted to direct Red in his home country. And so he approached me and he said, I really would like to consider you as Hua. Hua is the male Beijing opera star in the play. And I was flabbergasted. <laughs> and I said, Che, I'm really flattered that you would even think I could do that role. But this is a play, you know, about a father and a daughter. And I just don't think I could do that. I think you need a man to play this role. And he said, well, think about it. I think you, you think you could do it. So I thought about it and I got so excited thinking about it. I just felt, wow, when am I ever going to play a role like this? When am I ever going to get offered a role like this again? So I called him up and I said, you know, Chai, I think I'd really love to do it, but I'm a little scared because we'd be doing it in your home country. And, you know, I'm, I'm an American. I'm not an Asia born actor and mm-hmm. I'm playing a Beijing opera star. And I just feel like, you know, holy cow, they're all, they're going to know the difference. They're, no one's going to believe me as either a male or a Beijing opera star. Right. And, um, he said, don't worry about it. You'll just do like representative hand gestures. So I said, okay, let's meet at the taper. I'll read a few scenes for you. And if you like what you hear, I'll do it. So we met at the taper with some other people to hear it. And, uh, I stayed up for most of the night, you know, trying to figure out how to be a man convincingly. And I think I read like one and a half scenes and Che looked at me and he said, I'm bored. He said, you can do it. You can do it. Let's go eat. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a quintessentially Che you thing. It, it only sounds so funny. It's, it's so easy for the people that have the job to be able to just say, yeah, well, okay, let's get, let's get, let's get going. It, it's, you know, for you as the actor going, I want this job and you're putting so much energy into it. It's, it's just, it's just so funny. The other side of the table there. Yes. He said, I knew you could do it. I was just humoring you. He said, you had to get that out of your system. Let's go eat. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So, so you went and did it in Singapore first and then you brought the show to LA. Yes. What happened was that Tim Dang was the artistic director of East West players at the time. And they had also done chase plays. They actually had done the trilogy of his plays and they were in the old East Hollywood space. And now they were in equity theater in little Tokyo and, uh, I think that Tim had heard that Che was going to be directing Red in Singapore in his home country and was very interested. And he, I believe what happened is he asked to come see a rehearsal. He liked what he saw and he said, I would like to program this at East West Players after you do your singatory rep. Wow. So you're doing it at Singatory Repertory Theater. He said, so I would like to bring this production to East West Players. So after we did it in Singapore, this is Emily Kuroda and Paige Leong. And I, 
then we did the same production at East West Players. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I know, I mean, I know it was well received in LA. Like what was the reception in Singapore? We did well in Singapore, I think. I mean, as, as I recall, not knowing the Singaporean theater community as well as sure. I do, of course, yeah. the LA theater community. I remember when we did it here, we got great uh, notices. The word of mouth was great on the show. Um, I eventually was honored with a, a Theater LA Ovation Award for mm-hmm. Outstanding Lead Performance. And um, I think in Singapore... I think our reviews were good too, as far as I remember. Right. Uh, I remember thinking I was much more anxious in Singapore because that was, of course, the first production of the play. And also because Che decided when we got to Singapore that I wouldn't just do representative hand gestures as Master Hua. I would actually dance Beijing oh, wow. Opera Moves. Yeah. Wow. And so I was terrified. <laughs> As well, you, yeah, you've already. Terrified. Of course, he waits until after the long plane ride to tell you this. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. You're stuck here, Jeannie. Um, this is what you got to do. Stuck, yes. And the Beijing opera coach that we had there said in front of everybody at rehearsal, because I was trying to get out of it, and I said, I'm not a dancer, and this is Asia, and I don't think it's a good idea if I try and be a Beijing opera star here in Asia when. I'm not a dancer and I'm an American. <laughs> mm. I was just really trying to weasel out of it. And then our Beijing opera choreographer who was from China put his hand on my shoulder in front of everyone and said, I have confidence that you can do this. And so then I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. but I think I was put at ease when someone from Singapore came up to me and said, you know, your portrayal reminded me of myself, of the strict Asian Singaporean father I try to be to my daughter because I think that that is what's good for her. Mm. But your portrayal made me question whether the way that I am bringing her up so strictly, whether that is a good thing. Oh, wow. And and I thought, well, really, it's just about the humanity of the character. And I started to worry less about the Beijing opera dance yep, movements yep. and about playing a man and just really more about the humanity of the character yeah. I was playing. Very cool. Uh, so I think from that point, I was able to relax a little more. Well, and you, well, you said you were, you know, just bowled over when Che suggested the part to you. How, when, when you were nominated and even won the award in LA for it, I mean, what was, did, had you kind of embraced that? Did you feel like you had done a good job with the part or, or was that just another thing that you were just like, I can't, I can't believe this? Well, I think the blessing of worrying so much about whether I would be accepted as a man and as a Beijing opera star had the effect of the blessing of that is I had the effect of removing my attention from mm. any sort of thoughts about awards <laughs> or yep, anything yep. like that. I can honestly say it never entered my mind when we were at East West Players, any thought about awards because I was so absorbed in, you know, how to be convincing as a man and a Beijing opera star. And I was so absorbed in doing the movements perfectly. I practiced them over and over and over again. I got training on, you know, how to lower my voice and speak more like a man without hurting my voice. Um, I was studying Chinese culture 
intensely and I was studying the cultural revolution intensely. I still have a whole row of books here at my house on the cultural revolution. Hmm. And I was watching videos of Chinese opera star, Beijing opera star, Mei Lang Fang. Okay. Um, just drinking all this up. It was, the research was so intense for it that it absorbed every waking moment I had. Yeah. So like I said, the blessing was I never thought about awards. And when that happened, it was just such a thrilling surprise. Mm. I had totally forgotten there were ovation <laughs> voters coming to see it. And I think maybe the fact that I was so unself-conscious about what I was doing, maybe that had something to do with it. But yeah, that yeah. was a joy. Yeah. Well, cool. Now, I know, speaking of uh, opera singers, you are actually the second person I've spoken with who played uh, Maria Callas in Oh my uh, god, that was another huge unexpected gift. Yeah. I and think so, that yeah. Yeah, so I mean I spoke with uh Gigi Birmingham and kind of her, you know, process because of course, you know, in this case you're speaking at least from an American culture, uh someone that and probably not this generation, my generation, but the previous generation or much more familiar with her and you know, her mannerisms and, and who she was and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, here you are playing a real person on stage and you're singing and, and all that. So I was curious what your preparation was for the role. Well, again, this was something that was a total surprise. Mm-hmm. I had seen Masterclass on Broadway. Oh, okay. Dixie wow. Carter, Dixie Carter was doing the role at the time and she was fantastic. And I walked out of the theater thinking that is my dream role and I'll never wow. get to play it wow. because of who I am. Obviously I'm the wrong ethnicity. So I just forgot about it. But years later it was announced in East West player season. I said, Oh my God, they're doing masterclass. Yeah. <laughs> That's my dream role. And it was to be an Asian American version of masterclass. And, uh, it was, it was so thrilling to just walk in and audition for it. And I remember thinking to myself, I have no chance of getting this because I know <laughs> next to nothing about opera. I mean, if I had known that someday I would audition for it, I would be educating myself about the right. opera all those previous years. But of course I never thought I would play it so that I didn't. <laughs> and, um, but I went online. There wasn't that much time to audition, to prepare for the audition, I remember. And so I was trying to give myself a crash course in opera and in Maria Cullis. But I saw this beautiful video of her online. I think she was singing um, Casta Diva. Okay. And I connected with it on such a deep level. And I thought, I don't know anything about opera, really. But I understand something intuitively about this woman. About, you know, beneath that diva crown she had in the opera world was so much sadness, so much insecurity, so much passion for what she did. And yet such insecurity and uh, such turmoil. And I could certainly relate to that part of her. And the love of what she did, I could certainly relate to that. So I just went into the audition 
really trying to focus on all the things I had in common with Maria Callas. It almost felt presumptuous to say that this great diva, this great artist, you know, of our times. And yet she was very human. She was, um, she had, of course, great failures as well as great successes and great sadnesses because of those failures. She had great fear of not being loved, great losses. Um, so I really, again, just tried to focus on the elements of her humanity. Mm, And so, yeah, so, um, I continued to study and continued on that crash course all through the time I worked and performed the role. Uh, I got to work with uh, Jules Aaron, who directed that production, and it was just a great time. My husband said he's never seen me so joyful working on a role. Mm, that's very cool. That's uh, yeah. great that you had that experience. It was such a tragic role, but uh, yeah. Jeannie, the actor, was experiencing so much joy. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> Okay, so now I do want to talk about uh, the solo show, Hold These Truths. And, and I know there's a ton of stuff we could talk about. But one of the things, you know, I was just really curious about, kind of thinking about this, you know, based on the actor you are, you know, and and the time we're in that people are writing a lot of material uh, because they are not seeing themselves uh, represented or they're not seeing opportunities for themselves. And I'm thinking, well, here's, you know, here's an Asian American actress. And it's not like there's, you know, thousands of, uh, you know, parts as, as there are for maybe Caucasian actors, though you said that's changing, which is great. But I was almost wondering, like, you know, was there ever a moment where Jeannie, the writer, was like, I got to write something for me? Or did that ever cross your mind? Uh, it's crossing my mind now. Okay. It's very interesting because <laughs> people have said, why don't you play Gordon yourself? Why don't you perform? Your oh, interesting. Play? Interesting. Yes. And at times I've toyed with the idea, but you know, Gordon Hirabayashi, when I first discovered his story, mm-hmm. it made such a profound impact on me. And I really wanted to, as much as possible, see the historic Gordon on stage. Uh, I first discovered his story when I was reading a book called The Courage of Their Convictions, and I saw a documentary film on Gordon. And I think it's a little hard to explain, but because my father's side of the family had been imprisoned in those barbed wire camps, right. and I, because I had grown up with that feeling of turmoil within myself and, and their sh- feeling of, we have to hide this, we're ashamed of it. And... I think when I discovered Gordon's story, it was so full of light and redemption for all those years of dealing with and absorbing and wrestling with that pain, with that psychic pain. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted very much to see the young historical Gordon on stage uh, was because that first visual impact I saw when I first saw his picture was so profound on me. Hmm. And I thought I've never seen a story like this on stage before. I haven't seen an Asian American on stage like Gordon. I was so taken with the fact that he was so young when he legally challenged these orders. Right. And I did want to see that visual representation of the person that he was at that time. So while I did a staged reading of the entire play in Chicago, 
at Che's Victory Theater. And it was oh. a very fascinating exercise. I've never had a desire to really do a run of the play myself. It was really fun doing that reading mm-hmm. and to be Gordon, you know, for 90 minutes in Chicago. But I, part of it too now, I think is that I've seen such stellar actors do the role. Yes. And yeah. they've done it over years. And so their performances have grown and are so seasoned. And I love watching them still. Yeah. So I think that the way my thinking has gone in writing for peace for myself has been to write about a woman in the Japanese American community whom I could play. And so I might be doing that. I'm not sure at this point, but okay. it's definitely something I'm thinking about. And I'm also getting more interested now right. uh, since so much of my recent history, the p- recent years has been in the theater and right. I'm getting more interested in film now. So I'm thinking of maybe writing a part for myself to make a five minute film, oh, cool. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, and so did like, did the, did the solo play come out of something? Did you feel like was missing creatively for you or, or where did the, I mean, I know you said you were very taken by the story, but not everybody would be like, okay, now I need to write a play about that. Yes. Well, um, again, when I discovered Gordon's story, it was at a time where there were certain different pathways leading up to my passionate desire to see it on the American stage. Mm-hmm. You know, one is that this was in the 1990s when I first learned about Gordon. And again, as I said several times during this time with you, there weren't a lot of Asian American roles at the time. Right. Yeah. That were beyond certain stereotypes, certain expected ways that Asians would be portrayed. You know, to see a young Asian American college student who legally challenged U.S. government orders, well, I had never seen that on stage. I had never seen a story like that on stage. And, you know, my love of theater and my growing awareness of who I was as an Asian American, as a Japanese American, um, those two streams came together when I learned about Gordon. Well, and, and I would say there was the th- the third part of your journalism background. I mean, it's yes, you know, you're you're telling this story, and and like a uh, you know uh, like a journalist, there's you know how do you what's the what's the structure of it, and how do you include the important parts, yes. the necessary parts, and all that kind of stuff. The challenge of that, and and actually probably the fourth and deepest stream for me is I had a great need to absorb this story. Because of what my family had gone through. Right. Um, I had a deep psychic need for it. You know, I had never heard of anyone that had challenged the orders legally. I didn't know right. this story. Well, yeah. I mean, of course, if you grew up where people barely even spoke about this. Exactly. And, and then here's, you know, I mean, this Gordon could have been a hero to, you know, uh, you and all of your friends as kids growing up if you knew about it. If we knew about it, yes. Right. It flabbergasted me that I didn't know about it. And, um, you know, I was helped too by the fact that, that I think so many streams of my life came together at this point where I discovered Gordon's story because I could not stop thinking about it. It absolutely took over my brain, took over yeah. my life. 
I would wake up thinking about it. I would go to bed thinking about it. I thought about it all the time. It just would not let me rest until I wrote it. <laughs> and, but, you know, I discovered this beautiful poem by a sansei poet, Japanese American sansei poet, David Mura. It was a poem called Gardens We Have Left. And in this poem, he had a a few stanzas where he talked about Gordon, about Gordon coming to speak to his students. He was um, a a professor at college, David was. And he spoke of the profound impact that Gordon had on his students. And he mused about Gordon's hitchhiking trip Mm. in this poem. And he did it in such a beautiful, beautiful way that it really gave me the feeling of the play I wanted to write. And um, so that was just the most beautiful springboard. And I remember when I first read this poem, I just wept because it was like such a redemptive light, you know, after so many years of the darkness of this huge traumatic event being stuffed away, you know, into the chest of my family's history. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I actually have the excerpt here. If you oh, want to okay, great. Yeah, great. So, again, this is from the poem Gardens We Have Left by David Mura. Yesterday at the campus grill with my blonde, blue-eyed students over burgers and fries, Gordon Hirabayashi spoke of refusing the 42 curfew. After countless prayers to his Quaker God, he stood before the court and uttered a no they refused to hear. Sent to camp without a ticket, whistling in the dark, he thumbed his way there. Wild hairs scattering across the white-lined asphalt, the dipper spilling overhead its cup of stars. With wire-rimmed glasses and hair softly graying, looking almost a double of my father, he reached into that era held it before me, pulsing like a vein. So when I read that, it just brought forth a big gush of tears. Yeah, wow. It was like a door opened for me. And amazing. Yeah, it was an amazing moment. And so every so often as I was working on the play, I would come back to this passage in David's poem, and I would say, this was the spark. Right. Um, and, and then seeing a documentary film shortly after that by my friend John DeGraff, which you can see online. It's oh, called, cool. um, A Personal Matter, Gordon Hirabayashi versus the United States. Okay, and it's called right. A Personal Matter. Yeah, it's called A Personal Matter because Gordon made the Constitution a personal document for him. Right. It's so easy for us to say, oh yes, the Constitution of the United States and it's, kind of this sort of like the Ten Commandments, something engraved in stone at a distance from us. But Gordon took it very personally, which was why he felt he had no other choice but to legally challenge orders that he felt were unconstitutional. Yeah. So David's poem and John DeGraff's documentary film just kind of lit me on fire in terms of wanting to try and develop a play about Gordon. And and how long did it take to figure out the structure of Hold These Truths? Well, when I first read about Gordon and learned about Gordon, 
again, in the 1990s, one-person shows were not as common as they are now. They were a kind of newer art form. I remember I saw a solo show by an actor named Paul Link, and it was about his deceased wife and her struggle with cancer and his grief and having to move on um, and, and work through his grief. And I think that was, for many, the first solo show they ever saw, or at least the first show that became very popular, you know, mm-hmm. as a solo show. And then shortly after that, I saw my friend Jude Narita do a solo show. It was different from Paul's show in that Paul was telling his own story and Jude was playing four or five different uh, Asian American characters. But again, it was unusual. Not everyone was doing that. And so the, that art form was very much on my mind when I discovered Gordon's story and I, thought, wow, this would be an amazing way to tell Gordon's story. I saw him becoming all the people that he was encountering right. on his journey and legally challenging uh, the curfew le- um, that was aimed at Japanese Americans and then Executive Order 9066, which allowed uh, the military to forcibly remove them from their homes on the West Coast. I thought, wow, that would be a great yeah. way to tell this story. So... I immediately saw it as a one-person show. And then as I started to write it, I tried to write it as a multi-character play and then as a screenplay, but I found myself coming back to that first inspiration. And eventually that was the way that seemed the best way to go for several other reasons. I also wanted to create a piece where an Asian-American actor would show off his virtuosity. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's really kind of remarkable. And, uh, you know, as, as the Steve Jobs quote goes, it's, you have to trust that things are lining up, uh, into the future. You, it's only with hindsight that you can see that they were that, that this is, you know, writing this play sounds like it's been about a 25 year journey, or at least to this point, um, you know, and, and, and how it's doing, but it's, yeah. been, you know, like a 60 year journey. Uh, for you of, of, you know, just being able to bring this story forth that, that also predates you, you know, it's in your family's history. Um, and, and that it's something that, that as we talked about has so many, um, streams, as we mentioned, you know, of, of interest and, and, uh, inspiration for you. And it's something that, you know, not to take anything away from your acting career, but it's, really taken off and had a life of its own. Um, it's, it's really, it's really pretty amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's like I said, as each step happens, you just think, okay, I have to do this. I'm going to try and accomplish this. And then you look back and you think, wow, I really come a long way with this play. And, you know, I have to really give credit. Like I said, I'd never written a play before when I first started out doing it. I had so many people help me, so many people who are still Mm -hmm. helping. And so my special thanks section in the play is huge. (laughs) (laughs) I had so many people read it and give me suggestions. And then even after the play was produced after premiered and was produced in multiple places, people would come up to me and say, you know, that thing that you say on this particular topic, that's not quite accurate. Uh, Maybe you could try saying this or, you know, so 
there's still a few things that I have to correct in it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's good that you're open to that, uh, that you don't, that you haven't just said, okay, no, I'm done. I'm moving on to the next thing. It's, it's nice that you're, you can have that, um, I guess, editor's eye. Yeah, well, I try and I know it means a lot to people who actually went through these things or who yeah, have course. studied uh, these years in much more detail than I have. I know it means a lot for them to get certain things right. That's true. Of course, it yeah. is drama. Right. And I remember when I was first working on the play right before our East Coast Players premiere in 2007 and Jessica Kabzanski, you know, how wonderful Jessica is with new plays. She was working with me. We we're still trying to nail the script down. And I was saying she was proposing moving one event in the play to an earlier section of the play. And I said, well, Jessica, you know, it, it didn't happen uh, chronologically until this point in the play. And she said, well, real life doesn't always conform to the demands of good drama. She right. said, if we move that incident to this play, it will build to the climax so much better. Mm-hmm. And then she found a way to do that. And um, so I learned that as long as you have, and then Jose Rivera, another playwright I was learning from at the time, he said, if you just stay with Garden's heart, I think you'll be okay. So I really tried to just stay with the story of Gordon evolving into someone that had no choice to legally challenge these orders. He just came to that point where he could not obey these orders anymore. Right. And the actual chronology of certain incidents became less important as long as I kept to that gradual story of his evolution. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Uh, like I said, I know we could keep talking about this. I had a, I had a couple film and TV on screen related questions and we're going to totally change tone, but I want to ask about you working on the web series Yom Yom F. Oh, yes. <laughs> and cause I know, I mean, funny enough, uh, there you were now working again with Sab Shimono, uh, who you had done, uh, read with years and years ago. Yes. Um, and, and for those who are, I, I, it was a new channel for me, but it's, you offend me, you offend my family. Yum, yum. Yes. It's really <laughs> funny. Um, but I was, you know, I mean, I, and I know you've done a lot of on-screen work, but since this was a, a YouTube channel show, I was curious, how was it different from a traditional TV or film set? Or was it the same? Or was it freer or looser or more experimental? You know, I was just curious about that. Well, I think because um, it was a experience where you were definitely doing a shoot, you know, mm-hmm. everything was set and planned and planned for, and it was very professionally conducted, but there was a sense of fun and play to it because there were friends involved. And also because there were, uh, how should I, how should I put it? There were not those elements of pressure that you would have shooting a television show or a film. I just remember it being very playful and fun. Cool. Uh, because everyone, I think, involved with that production, it, it was just a sense of let's get together and, and play. Mm-hmm. And it was authored by, um, 
the director that has actually worked at Antias, Robin Larson and oh, John okay. Polono. Yeah, John Polono, an actor. They were good friends and had, uh, oh, actually they were friends. I think Robin was a friend of Justin Lin's. They had gone to school together or did some project together. And so he had invited her uh, to submit something to Yam Yam F. And so she got together with John and I think authored this web series. And she had worked with Suzy Nakamura, whom I had worked with years ago on a pilot. And I was playing Susie's mom and Saab, of course, was a good friend. So there was just a sense of play and fun working with Susie and Saab. And there was a lot of uh, spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we used our own clothes and, you know, things like <laughs> that. They were welcoming our ideas. So I, I love doing things like that because there's an informality. You're definitely observing a professional schedule right, in right. that sense, but you also have more of a sense of uh, this is from the ground up. This is sure. grassroots. You know, and I think that lends itself to more creativity and just a looser environment. Yeah. I think that well, comes across too. Yeah. You oh, yeah. No, I, yeah, yeah. I watched the episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. So now, I, and I know you were willing to talk about, uh, one of the shows you did called Threat Matrix, where you played this, uh, Cambodian character. And what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll post the, text, you know, the excerpt of dialogue that you sent me, um, so people can kind of follow along or have some context, but, um, oh, this, great. this was a, um, well, I mean, you can tell me a little bit more about the character, but, you know, since she was Cambodian, I was curious what kind of research went into you playing someone from Cambodia. You know, you talked a bit about, you know, doing red and all the research you did for that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll just kind of start there and like how much, how much research was done for the audition. And then, you know, once you had the job, was there any additional research you were doing? Oh my God. This was, you know, in television, sometimes you're cast and you have to shoot just a few days later. Right. So I virtually had done no research on Cambodia other than what was referred to in the monologue, but. Okay. Yep. Um, Luckily for me, a couple years earlier, I had read Dr. Heng Yor's autobiography called A Cambodian Odyssey. I was good friends with a man named Jack Ong, who recently passed away. And Jack Ong became very good friends with Dr. Heng Yor. And I forget if they did a project together, but of course, Dr. Heng Yor went through the Cambodian Holocaust. He escaped the Khmer Rouge and made it to... Um, a Thai refugee camp, I believe, and then to Los Angeles. And he worked and lived in Chinatown for a number of years and was tragically shot in Los Angeles' Chinatown. But he had written an autobiography, and my friend Jack was head of his foundation for many years. And I read Dr. Hengyor's autobiography which was horrific because it describes in great detail the Cambodian Holocaust. So when this audition came up, even though I did not have time to do any further research other than what was referred to in the monologues, I did have that book still. I pulled it off the shelf. And so when I got the job, 
uh, I buried myself in that book for the next few days until shooting started. Yeah. Uh, but I also had to try and learn a scene in Khmer, which is the uh, Cambodian dialect. Right. It's yeah. called, it's spelled K-H-M-E-R, but I, as I recall, the pronunciation is Khmer. And they provided a dialect coach for me to come visit me at my home and work with me for a couple of days. But it's a very difficult language to speak if you've never spoken it before. The vowel sounds are very different from any language I've studied before. And I could not wrap my tongue around it. And I apologized to my coach and I said, I'm going to ask if they can find a Cambodian woman uh, that can dub my voice in the scene because I don't want to embarrass the Cambodian community, <laughs> but they couldn't find anyone. It's, it was rare at the time to mm. find Cambodian actresses and they really did need an actress to do this scene. Of there's course, a, you yeah. know, a lot of, uh, intensely emotional delivery of certain lines. And so, uh, Poon was my, a Cambodian dialect coach and Poon said, you know, if I can just understand you, I'll be happy. I know you'll have an American <laughs> accent, but if I can just understand you, I'll be happy. So we worked very hard and I guess I did okay. Although I think <laughs> they sped me up in the editing room. So I would sound oh, more fluent. Okay. <laughs> um, but she was a character. It was a very sad story because she, like Dr. Hanyor, this character had escaped the, um, the Khmer Rouge to make it safely to the United States. But in this particular episode, her American born son, who has never known any other home because of his high school involvement with a Cambodian gang gets very suddenly deported back to Cambodia. Mm. And he is endangered there because of some political entanglements and has to go hide in the jungle. And he's hiding in a hut that actually my character remembers very specifically from my own days trying to escape the Khmer Rouge. And so when the homeland, the United States Homeland Security team in this TV show, Threat Matrix, comes to me wanting to locate my son in this hut, I am giving them my memories of how to get there. Right. Wow. So there are agents who are physically in Cambodia trying to find their way to this particular hut. And I am in my Los Angeles home with another agent who is on radio right. with them, instructing them how to get there. And, and so, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, you know, I'm looking at some of the dialogue that your character has, um, you know, there's very much, she's putting herself, you know, back in that space. And I, you know, as, as an actor, I've always felt like, you know, trying to remember these experiences that aren't, in the present, like those are always for me, some of the most challenging monologues that, you know, you have yes. to, you know, you have to tell somebody right now, something that happened to you 20 years ago or something like that, that it's, for me, it's much easier to be like, well, let me tell you about something happening right now in this moment. Yes, yes, yes. This was a long monologue. It was storytelling. And in the episode, the episode is actually on YouTube. Yep. It's mm -hmm. that matrix, the finale. So you can actually watch it. So right. as I'm narrating the story, they're intercutting the camera shots of me with shots of the team making their way in Cambodia to the hut. And then also they're intercutting it in another monologue 
with scenes of my younger self. Right. Uh, making my way, you know, trying to escape the Khmer Rouge. So just so you have a sense of that. Uh, and it's true. Sometimes those monologues are really challenging when it's so much in the past. And yet it, I remember feeling very at ease doing this monologue because there was so much detail in Dr. Heng Yor's autobiography mm. about his home, the type of land that surrounded his home and his escape. Uh, there were so many incredible details that just burned themselves into my memory. And I used a lot of those details as I was working on this monologue. Mm. Um, you know, there were many accounts of him having to hide from the Khmer Rouge, having to stay silent, um, terrified that he was going to be discovered, hearing people scream, hearing people tortured, you know, all those things I remembered as I was doing this monologue. And I think had I not read that book, it would have been much more difficult to audition in a convincing way for this role and to play this character. But I felt like since I read it, it there was so much that was that had made such a deep impression on me that subliminally it was there, yeah. you know, as I did it in front of the cameras. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, I actually been to Cambodia and I remember going to Phnom Penh and, there, not far from where I was staying, there was, it was a high, I believe it was a high school that had been converted to a prison during the Khmer Rouge. And, oh, wow. and you could tour it. You could go through and, um, you know, they had pictures and, you know, just, it was really, I think basically just room to room, there were just, you know, lots of photographs of what used to be there. And it was so horrific. I mean, it was so unbelievably yeah. horrific that, you know, it, it just, and, and this was, I mean, you know, think of like a densely populated city. Like this was a prison, you know, a high school and then a prison just right in the middle of the city. And this wasn't, you know, anything way out in the, you know, in the countryside. It was like, this was going on like right in the city. And, you know, I mean, there's so many atrocities that have happened in the world, but this is just something that like just to be there and, and to walk through these rooms. And I mean, like you're saying, it's, it was so, uh, palpable and so overwhelming. Yes. Have you seen the film, The Killing Fields? I, I haven't. And, and I'm going to sound like a horrible tourist, but The Killing Fields is something you can go see in Phnom Penh. But I'll tell you, after we went to the high school and the prison, I was just like, I, I can't, I can't take any more of this. Like this was, this was horrible enough. Like I can't imagine yeah. going out there. Yeah. Well, I only mentioned that movie because the man I've been talking about, Dr. Hang Yor, whose autobiography I read, uh, he has a marvelous story. He came to Los Angeles and was working, doing social work, you know, for immigrants in LA's Chinatown. He had an office there and he went to a wedding and there was a casting director at this wedding who was at this wedding who was trying to find Cambodian actors to audition for this film, The Killing Fields. Oh, wow. So she took a photo of Dr. Nyor and he ended up getting cast in the film and he ended up winning an Academy Award for his oh, portrayal. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah of um journalist i think you can see his 
speech on YouTube. Sure. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, because it, it, it is, it's the, the dialogue in the scene, like it's, it's almost poetic in some way that, you know, it it's, it's fragments it really of, is of sentences written. and things like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, how, it's almost like, uh, asking or, or not asking, but, uh, you, one would assume your theatrical training only helped you kind of make sense of things and, and the structures of phrases and, you know, it's taking your time or, or whatever you wanted to do that, that probably a lot of that was informed by a lot of the theater you had done up to that point. It's yeah, very much true. It has a lot of imagery. I come mm-hmm. to big clearing. She says, tall grass, many mine. I see sand scared, my legs shaking. You know, we hear them, Khmer Rouge, Banyan Jungle. You know, there's, so, um, oh wait, that's the other monologue. I opened up a different monologue, but it's the same thing. Right. As in the monologue I sent you, there's just a lot of sensory memory. And definitely as a theater trained person, I used a lot of my theater training for that. I just, I don't think I've really had an audition since then with such a remarkable monologue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, listen, I, this, this has been wonderful. I, I I know we could keep talking. I, uh, I had a couple just short questions I wanted to ask. I think you even, uh, maybe you alluded to it before we started how you spend your days when you're not working, when you don't need to be on set, when you don't need to be in rehearsal, what kind of structure do you give your life? Well, I love being outdoors. I've been doing a lot of hiking in Griffith Park. I live close to Griffith Park. Okay, cool. And, uh, you know, it's so funny. We're such creatures of habit. So I've lived here where I'm living now near Griffith Park for about 20 years. And yet I always just tended to same the take, take the same hikes. Mm-hmm. And so this year I determined that I was going to explore all kinds of new paths. So I've been discovering all these beautiful paths in Griffith Park that I never walked before. And now I feel like, oh my God, I, why haven't I done this before? <laughs> <laughs> I went 15 years without knowing about this beautiful little grove of trees here. So I've really been enjoying walking in Griffith Park. And uh, I love to cook and bake. So I find that cooking and baking is a great, um, great thing to do while you're working on a roll. Okay. Because it sort of metaphorically represents what you're trying to do in the creation of a character is that you have a stew and you add some salt. Oh, it's a little too much salt. I have to add a little more pepper. Oh, wouldn't some corn be good? Oh, maybe just spice this up with a little, oh, maybe some thyme and rosemary here. And you just, it's sort of like we do with the scene. Right. You know, we get sort of the base of the stock and the meat or whatever. And then we start adding little things here and there to make it more interesting. <laughs> and I, so I really love baking or cooking while I'm working on a roll or while I'm writing. Very cool. And yeah. And uh, so that's what I've been doing lately. A lot of walking and uh, some biking. Uh, when I bike, I feel like I'm a kid again. So I love <laughs> being on my bike. I just found out about e-bikes, though, which would make things so much easier. Oh, so yeah, sure. I'm excited about researching e-bike. 
Uh, but a lot, yeah, a lot of walking and hiking, a lot of cooking, baking, and researching e-bikes. <laughs> Very cool. Is what I'm doing lately if I'm not working. Now, you, you mentioned your, your husband a couple of times and, and I, as I do research, I, you know, I see that he's, you know, been able to be with you at a lot of the, uh, uh, productions of Hold These Truths and all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious. So you said you put him through school. So what is it that he does or if he did, if he's retired, what he did? He's a psychotherapist and he's just a little ways away from retirement, maybe a couple more years. Okay. But he, Went to Fuller Seminary at the time in Pasadena. Had a wonderful um, MFT program, Marriage mm-hmm. and Family Therapist. And so he got his, well, then it was called MFCC. So he got his master's there and then began getting his hours. And um, once he got his hours and was able to go to work, then it was my turn, we said. Yeah. And so I took the leap into theater. <laughs> but yes, it's very interesting having a therapist for a husband because I can talk about my roles with him. Sure. I can say, well, if his character is schizophrenic, what in his or her background might have caused that? Mm. If this character is has had a great deal of abuse in her background, how does that affect what she's doing in the scene, what she's saying, who she's talking about, how much trust she has and who she's, you know, all those questions. And he has some wonderful insights to the characters that I'm trying to create. Um, But he also has a wonderful ability to just disengage (laughs) from his work. And when he comes to watch me perform, it's really lovely because he's not really a theater trained person. So he's not giving commentary like, well, I think that actor's motivation could have been, you know, he's not saying things right, like that. Right, right. He's just reacting to it fresh as an audience member. Right. And so that's really refreshing. Very cool. And, and I know you guys just recently celebrated a, a, an anniversary and it's been over 40 years that you've been together. And, and it sounds like even, in the early part of your relationship and your marriage, it, you know, you were, it was very much a partnership of how you can support the other person. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, it's probably one of those things where how did it get to be 40 years later? But, um, <laughs> yeah, how, we were so fortunate. How, like, well, we've definitely had our ups and downs. Of course, of course. All around. Do you feel like there, there are some ideas that, that you're able to look back and say, well, this is one of the reasons we've been able to make it 40 years, 40 plus years. You know, I think some of that is really luck. It's so fascinating, you know, because when two human beings are in a marriage, there's so many things that can change within the relationship or change within the individual person, individual personalities of the two people in that relationship and so many circumstances that can change. Um, that means that maybe it's best that those two people not continue together. And so I think there's a certain amount of luck in the fact that our marriage has lasted as long as we have because the changes that each of us has gone through individually in a couple has not at least yet gotten us to the point where we felt like we were no longer able to be in a marriage together. Right. Uh, I think that we've embraced those changes, but some of them have been very scary. You know, Tim did not know that he married an actor. 
I thought he married <laughs> a true. librarian. Yeah, that's true. That's a very different kind of person. It's a very different kind of life. So, right. you know, he didn't envision a life where I was going out of town to do regional theater or where he was, you know, that's a going through point. gut-wrenching yeah. times yeah. where I was unemployed and had no prospects of employment anywhere. You know, he didn't foresee the depressions that came from insecurities about me. He didn't, didn't sign on to any of that. Right. No, that's so a, that's a, fortunately, you know, but I think every union of two personalities is different. And I think that there's no shame in coming to a point where you say, you know, we're better off apart now as individuals or sure. with other people. Uh, I think that the fact that he is a therapist has shown us that, that there's just many, many different pathways in life. And we just feel very fortunate that we can still continue together and there we still are each other's best friends. Mm-hmm. I, I think one thing we had going for us is that we did really value communication from the very beginning yeah. and honest communication because we were both from backgrounds that didn't really emphasize honest communication. We were both from backgrounds that emphasize keeping up a certain image, mm. keeping up a reputation, keeping up a certain face. And so your life meant to serve that particular image or face or reputation to the detriment of honest communication. You know, you weren't even communicating honestly with yourself many times. Right. So years of therapy uh, unearthed that for me. And I think the fact that he was wanting to become a therapist, we both valued that. And so we would both look at our communication and say, are we being honest with each other? And we want to be honest with each other, but we're scared. We're frightened because we're afraid of the consequences of that honesty. Mm. And so we had a value on that kind of communication and on countering our past. He was from uh, a background. It was not, of course, he's not a person of color. He's Caucasian, but he was from a very Midwestern Lutheran family, mm. you know, mm-hmm. which had its own kinds of reputation and face to show it to the world. Right. And so it was a dismantling that took place of a lot of the values that we had grown up with and saying, no, we're choosing not to adhere to those values anymore. We're going to value, you know, an honest communication. And so we had a set of goals in place from the very beginning. And that may have really contributed strongly to us still being together because we still have those values. You know, we, we recognize this is what comes with age, I think, perspective. So I'm able to look back on my family's background and say, well, they were doing the best that they knew how to do at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to let go of, uh, or try to let go of the resentments and the rage that you feel that, uh, they didn't encourage that kind of honesty, you know, in their raising of me. Um, and you can say, well, they did the best they did because these were the values that they grew up with. So this, these are the values they brought to us as parents mm-hmm. and the habits. And, you know, a lot of that just comes with age, I think. Yeah. 
Well, Jeannie, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really, really wonderful. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Nathan. It was really great to think about all these things again. <laughs> um, one thing about being a hyphenate, you know, about being yes, an yeah. actor, writer, producer, whatever, is your, I think I was telling you, your mind is full of so many things and things get crowded out because there's only so much room in the brain. Right. And as you were asking me some of these questions, I began to think about things, for example, things that I used to do as an actor that I had forgotten, you know, acting exercises right. that I had learned from Mako, you know, the oh, first sure. yep. summer yep. workshop. And I thought, wow, I don't use that anymore. I don't say, what animal is this character? What color is this character? And I thought, you know, I miss those exercises. <laughs> I realized I miss the creativity that came from those things. So this has been really great. Awesome. Well, great. Yeah. Th thanks again. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, also, I'll just put in a little plug. Yes. Uh, for Hold These Trues, you can keep up with the play on our website, holdthesetrues.info. And you can keep up with what I'm doing at geniesicata.com. I have awesome. a website there. Great. Well, perfect. Yeah, I I, I hope people do uh, keep up with uh, both those sites. And, and I, I feel fortunate that even though it was a stage reading, it was just shy of a full production of, of Hold These Truths. So I, 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 I was honored to see it. And it's a great story. So hopefully uh, it'll, you know, people will continue to come out in droves and check it out. Yes. Well, we're in San Diego Rep in November. Awesome. So cool. tell all your friends down in San Diego, Nathan. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> hey, guys. Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show, starting at just $2 per month. Head over to WorkingActorsJourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey.